It's a genuine joy and blessing, not only for the membership at Pippin, but certainly also the visitors have come our way. We're delighted for each and every person represented, and it's our honest desire and certainly our wish that we'd each be edified in the most holy faith and that we could, in fact, render a worship service unto God that He would be most pleased with. As I stand before you this morning and as we give thought to what Brother Glenn read just a moment ago, would you please be turning to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, or rather, First uh, Peter, the fourth chapter, and we'll look at the first five verses of that chapter in just a moment. First Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. These introductory thoughts, or at least these introductory comments, perhaps would prepare our mind to give some consideration to the words of that chapter. Isn't it a blessing to be a Christian? Ephesians 2 verse 6 describes those of God who are Christians as having been in a position that they're in heavenly places with Christ. You and I realize even in this life, there is a sense in which we have been called to the sweetest, purest, grandest kind of life there is to live. I realize the world so often militates against it and stands in such opposition to it, but what a wonderful thing it is when you and I can gather in a setting like this one and lift high the banner of God's truth and in fact be molded and shaped and motivated by it, those heavenly places. And the considerations of that begin to bring you to the middle point on that slide. The book of First Peter has but five chapters. It isn't that lengthy a book, and yet in that book we notice a key word is suffering. Over and over again, the inspired writer makes reference to it and uses that term, Christ suffered, you and I as Christians will suffer, that's the way it is. And yet he uses that as a great motivation, a motivation to focus our eyes on the place where we look for no suffering. No wonder with those thoughts in mind, might I ask you to notice 1 Peter 3.16 reads like this, "...having a good conscience." that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation. You and I as Christians are called to have a good conversation. He's not talking about just what we talk about. That word conversation means lifestyle. Your conduct and your behavior and mind is supposed to be good. That leads us right into the lesson of the morning. We read it a moment ago, but to solidify some reflective thoughts about that, let's read it again. In 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 1, with this thought of a good conversation and the great sacrifice and suffering of Jesus, it says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves there likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his, life, of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? You probably have already noticed it, and that's where I took the title of the lesson. That phrase in verse number 4, excess of riot. 
With that in mind, it's not difficult to notice how Peter begins the chapter. There's a reference, isn't there, in that same set of ideas, these lusts of men. Did you note that particular usage of the word? What about these lusts of men? There you'll notice it, of course, in verses 1 and following. Here are some thoughts I believe it'd be worthwhile for each of us to consider with great care. The thoughts begin like this. Verse number 1, Jesus suffered in the flesh. Not only Peter, but so many other inspired writers definitively assert our Savior suffered in the flesh. Of course, we well remember that during the course of His life, there were a number of scenes and interesting events in which elements of suffering were seen. There were those who insulted Him and those who in fact looked with such disdain upon Him. But the primary feature and primary usage of this word suffering focuses the spotlight on His death. Oh, how He suffered in the moments in agony and oh, how He suffered leading up to the cross. There was the scourging and the crown of thorns and the various beatings and there was of course the driving of the nails into His body. It says, For then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Notice the phrase, in the flesh. Maybe there are those who would imagine, well, as God, maybe He somehow removed Himself from the terror and the agony of the pain, but it wasn't so. He suffered in the flesh. In Hebrews 2.14 we read, For as much then as children are made partakers of flesh and blood, so likewise He Himself took part in the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Blood coursed through his veins just like it does yours and mine. He had nerve endings and felt pain just like you and I do. Peter said, because he suffered in the flesh, the next part of that's a commandment for you and me. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Because he suffered in the flesh, you and I as Christians are commanded, arm yourself the word arm, as you can see, means to equip. It means to prepare. My friend, you and I have some work to do. we got to equip ourselves, arm ourselves with that which will allow us in faithfulness to proceed in what we're about to study this morning. May we immediately notice the world will not look kindly upon what we're about to study. You already noticed that, didn't you, in verse number 4. Whereas they think it strange... The world is going to call you a strange person for doing what we're about to study. It's going to call you names and put upon you a label of unnormal and intolerant and a kind of an individual who is a narrow-minded fundamentalist. The world is going to think it's strange. But you did notice in verse 5, didn't you? The reason you and I do this is because we appreciate that there's going to be a moment when an account will be given to him that will judge the quick and the dead. There's coming a day of judgment, and the activities of this life are going to be brought to bear in judgment that day. Certain things are not acceptable. Certain things are not pleasing to God, and we mustn't be guilty of them. These lusts of men. You'll notice that verses 1 to 5 of this chapter have surrounded that whole topic. That particular phrase I would ask you to consider, verse number 2 that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men. 
Isn't it true that there are propensities and desires and cravings and lusts in the human family? And often they seem to run rampant. They're unchecked. They are unrestrained in every way. People pursue these things. They did it then too. And Peter wrote to say, this is just not the way God wants it to be. And in fact, he's going to judge the quick and the dead and those guilty of these things. Those guilty of this kind of behavior will not be found pleasing. And they shouldn't expect heaven as their home. No wonder with that in mind, these lusts of men about the middle of that slide. Did you notice the way verse 1 ended? Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That person dedicated to the Christ, dedicated to God's way of doing things, as we've noted, the world will be rather antagonistic and rather oppositional to it. But the person devoted to the things of God is going to realize some suffering, going to realize some insults and some reviling, and going to realize that others are going to very much unappreciate it. But that person, to remain committed to that, will realize that person is not given over to sin. No wonder then, verse 2, the goal is that he should no longer live the rest of his time to the lusts of men. Peter's writing some individuals who once had lived a pretty rough kind of life. We're about to read of some of their sins, and they at that time lived in this kind of a way that was very much unacceptable. And Peter wrote saying, The person who is now committed to the Christ and committed to God will suffer in the flesh, and he doesn't live the rest of his days to the lusts of men. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, it asks us to consider the nature of the motive of our life. Is your life and mine dictated and motivated by these matters that are lusts of the flesh, lusts of men? Or do we serve a character in a matter far higher than that? Do we lift our eyes above the horizon to which men call us to appear and look for that great occurrence in judgment and get excited about the thought of hearing Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, Matthew 25. Maybe in light of those things... Surely in Revelation 12, verse 11, we remember that there is a three-pronged attack in which you and I are given assurance that we will reign supreme over the chicanery of the devil. What is it? One, the Word of God. Two, the blood of the Lamb. Three, being willing to die for the cause of Christ. Nothing should, in fact, be more important to us here on this earth than serving God, being right with Him. No wonder then that brings us to these lusts of men. Back to 1 Peter 4 verses 2 and following. You'll notice, perhaps it's time to define this of which we speak. These lusts of men mentioned in verse 2 and mentioned later also in the same passage, that word lust, it literally comes from a Greek word that means desires, longings, evil passions. I admit that it's certainly at least reasonable to a Appreciate a person with a craving and a desire for what's good. But overwhelmingly, the New Testament uses this word as a desire for something bad. A craving for and a passionate pursuit of what God condemns, these lusts of men. Surely in light of that, you'll notice the other cases where we see this word used immediately is something easy to appreciate. 
We could go back as far as Mark 4, verse number 19. When Jesus made a discussion about what it is that defiles a man, He said, lusts. So here's something that defiles a person. It makes him contaminated. It makes him spiritually unclean. Not only that. John 8, verse 44, as Jesus again speaking gave that marvelous description about the father of many of his day. You are of your father, the devil. And you'll notice in that same description, one of the things that father does is promote your lusts. Now, the devil doesn't promote lusts that are good, but they're lusts that are evil and lusts that are filled with iniquity. What about the next two? In James 1, verses 14 and following, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. The fruit of lust is sin. Finally, in 2 Peter 1, verse 4, beginning one verse earlier in verse 3, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Notice corruption associates to lust. Maybe we've already highlighted enough then to appreciate that these lusts oppose the will of God. He's not happy with them and He doesn't condone them. Surely in light of that, let's close that slide. What we've learned so far then is that a person committed to serving Christ won't pursue these excesses of riot, but rather will pursue the will of God. Now, you and I might ask, so what are these excesses of riot? What are at least the things that Peter warned the people of his day about? And what is it that he warns you and me about so readily today? The next slide takes us to verse number 3. So as we continue our study through 1 Peter 4, let's now translate to the next verse. He has just discussed these lusts of men. So Peter, what are you talking about? Verse 3, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Six things Peter lists. Let's look at the first two of them. First of all, the one heading the list. There was a former time in which these individuals to whom Peter wrote had lived a life described by the word lasciviousness. I would submit to you that that's surely not a word we hear much in the English language today. When's the last time you heard the word lasciviousness in common conversation? I suspect it's been a long time. What does this word mean then? If that was condemned then, you and I need to appreciate what is it about it that certainly we must appreciate today. For we still must not be guilty of this. Lasciviousness. First of all, the Greek word from which that word is taken is the word aselgia. I put it there in parenthesis. Now that perhaps doesn't help us any at all. For what does that word mean? That word, you'll notice, we can first of all look at several other places in the New Testament where that same Greek word is used, and upon appreciating those passages, we can obtain a ready understanding of the idea here. This word, aselgia, first of all in Mark seven twenty two, 
it is expressly said to be evil. Jesus himself, descriptive of and in consideration of this, identified it as that which was evil. What about the next one, Romans 13, 13? As Paul wrote that Roman letter, he highlighted to those individuals that we should strive to walk with honesty. And he identified again six things that are condemned by God. One of them was translated as wantonness. Same Greek word translated here as lasciviousness. Apparently, whatever this is, it'll condemn the soul. What about the next one, Galatians 5.19? I'm sure among the verses in Galatians, none are perhaps more familiar than that one. It's the works of the flesh. And Paul concluded that list by saying, Those guilty of this shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Would we all agree then that lasciviousness will condemn a soul? Mine. Surely in light of lasciviousness, why don't we then look at some other usages of the word? Remember, I mentioned it's used roughly a few times in the New Testament. A total of ten. In 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and following there, Lot had to deal with it. What took place in Genesis 19 when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed? You and I often think about the homosexuality there, but that was just one of the sins of which they were guilty. They were also guilty of lasciviousness. Lot had to deal with it, and oh, how it vexed his soul. Perhaps in the final analysis. 2 Corinthians 12, 21, same Greek word. Paul said how sad it was that there were some guilty of this aselgia that had not repented. Those guilty of aselgia, they have to repent because it's sinful. It's wrong. It is unpleasing and unacceptable to God. By now, I suppose we're ready to notice at the bottom. This is a choice that an individual makes. The devil can't make anybody be guilty of aselgia. It's a choice you and I make when I choose to live in a certain way or you and we follow the pathway that's involved in this. I say all of that to bring us to the bottom of the slide. What is this lasciviousness? The Greek word means to be without moral restraint. It has to do with pursuing what is sensual and that which is of lustful indulgence. It promotes this fleshly matter in life. However that's done, that's lasciviousness. And God condemns it in all the ways we've studied so far. You and I will notice again that 20 centuries ago there were people guilty of it. Is it any less true today? Are there still individuals who promote and pursue almost exclusively lustful indulgence? They follow that which is a carnal matter of the flesh and that alone. We know that the answer is yes. The next slide, I hope, to invite us to discuss some of that a little bit more carefully. But as we do so, let's look at the next word in Peter's list. After lasciviousness, there was lusts. As we noted a moment ago, whenever the New Testament uses that, the overwhelming appearance is that of evil. It's a passion and a longing and a craving for what's wrong. Or to be more specific, it's a craving for what's forbidden. Something to which I have no right, if I then pursue and have a craving and a desire for that and pursue it, that's the lust that the Bible condemns. There are certain things that God forbids me to have. Certain things He forbids you to have. 
were they not to crave those things, we have no right to them. As we develop that thought a little bit more, any action then that promotes and encourages and pursues this pursuit of what's forbidden is lust. And Peter condemns it here as well as these other verses you and I have just immediately studied. Maybe we can easily then appreciate. Let's look at one application. We know that the human body itself is a particular matter that falls immediately under the heading of our discussion today, doesn't it? Isn't it true that the human family is aflame with passion relative to the nature of flaunting that human body? You and I recognize it so easily in terms of immoral dress, unsatisfactory choice of clothing. After all, how does that fit into what we've studied? Lustful indulgence, that sensual pursuit we've discussed, what reason would there be for this except to promote that to which others have no right? We know in Genesis 2.25, Adam and Eve were originally naked and there was no shame in it. But that was before the fall in Eden. It was before Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And from that time forward, it has been the clear will of heaven that human beings clothe themselves properly so that there be no pursuit of these lusts and lascivious character. After all, that's condemning, isn't it? Surely, in light of those observations, look at the next set of ideas. I used the word naked a moment ago because the Bible did. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, but there was no shame prior to the sin. Question, what about nakedness as it's used otherwise in the sacred scriptures? Question, is it possible for a person to have on some clothes and yet still be naked? Absolutely. At least three times in the Word of God, the word's used that way. In Exodus 20, verse 26, in Exodus 28, verse 42, two times we see the priests, those who in fact officiated in religious ways, they were told, and we know they were wearing clothes, they were told not to appear naked. Easy enough to see that here were individuals who again were supposed to dress in such a way and with sufficient care so that portions and parts of their body that ought not to be seen were in fact concealed. Today, it still is true. Many people are wearing clothes, but they're naked. They're naked. In Isaiah 20, verses 4 and following, we have God describing a certain portion of the body, and it was supposed to be clothed to, pre to prevent nakedness. Question, that person may have had on clothes, but if that portion were then still visible, the person was naked in the sight of heaven. Today... So many choices are available. Modern clothing, quite frankly, is extremely immoral in so many cases. Consider bathing apparel, swimsuits if you please. If there ever was clothing that conceals virtually nothing, isn't that it? Individuals who, quite frankly, there's nothing concealed, you're able to see virtually everything there is to be seen. What nakedness is there? What sinfulness is there? Pursuits of lasciviousness. Now, admittedly, the person who chooses to wear that is preying upon the thoughts of those gazing and looking and watching and are thus encouraging lascivious thoughts in others. 
Wouldn't you hate to stand before God in judgment and give an account for encouraging sin in the life of somebody else? Not only that, not just things like swimming apparel. There's modern apparel where, quite frankly, individuals are wearing in public what is nothing more than undergarments. Nothing more than undergarments. Things made for sleeping, if you please, with one spouse are worn in public as wholesome apparel that, quite frankly, is not covered in any way. Shameful, plainly disgraceful, and lascivious and lustful in its nature. Those kinds of things are not to be worn in public apparel. You'll notice in light of that, you and I should think carefully about the, the way we cover the portions of our body. Ladies, make sure your tops and blouses are sufficiently covering. And much of what manufacturers make does not satisfy that definition. You'll have to augment it. You'll have to add something beneath what, what is bought so that you're properly clothed and covered. You don't want to be guilty of lasciviousness, encouraging that in the mind of anybody else. And we're told expressly then that a man who looks on a woman to lust after hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. May we be quick to say, don't put all the blame on the man. Now, if you're clothed correctly and the man is gazing and looking, then it is his fault. But if you have had a part to play in encouraging it by wearing sufficient, insufficient clothing, you're just as guilty as he is. We've got to be careful. Men, watch where you look. And furthermore, make sure you and I clothe ourselves correctly too. The Bible not only places this restriction and this character upon the lady, but also upon the man. As you and I close that slide... Might we then say, it also works for the lower part of the body. Make sure shorts are long enough and skirts and, and dresses are long enough. We live in a society where many would look upon thoughts like this with almost laughable character. But remember, those in Peter's day were guilty of it. The world hadn't changed a lot, has it? As you and I close that one, the list isn't finished. You'll notice the next three elements of the list. Back to 1 Peter 4, verse 3, please. We notice there it says, Excess of wine, revelings, banquetings. The next three, and why don't we turn our attention to all three of them in the last segment of our lesson this morning. You'll notice at the top, that these are all three listed and thus it's easy to appreciate the fact that there's some distinction between the three of them. They're all three not talking about the same thing. The Holy Spirit isn't redundant that way. But you'll notice, first let's define them. The first one, excess of wine, comes from a Greek word and I've again put, placed it on the slide for your consideration. Oinophlugia. Strange sounding word, but notice it's a compound word. It's pretty easy to understand. The word oinos is the word wine in Greek. Flugia means to bubble over or to overflow. And so to put them together, this is to overflow with wine, to bubble over with wine. It's an advanced state of drunkenness, isn't it? A person who has drunk a lot of alcoholic beverage. You'll notice that it's the third element in the list. It's just as condemned as the first two we described. It was wrong then, and it still is, isn't it? You'll notice that, why don't we define the next one while we're 
at that same consideration. The next word is translated revelings in the King James translation. This word, you'll notice, is the Greek word komos, K-O-M-O-S. What does that mean? It literally means a degree of revelry with feasting and drinking that typically lasts well into the evening. So may I ask you to notice here was a description of a kind of activity. It included revelry or carousing activity. There was alcoholic beverage involved and nothing is said about it being extensive or a lot of drinking. There's just some. It's just as condemned as the first two. At this point, as we begin to consider these, it's easy to imagine the frolicking and fun-filled activities that some in Peter's day had been enjoying. Peter said, this is not becoming of those that love the Lord. And it's not becoming of those who don't live to the lust of the flesh. Word number three. The word translated banquetings in the King James translation. That word is potos, P-O-T-O-S, meaning a drinking. That's it. You'll notice nothing in that word at all about this advanced, total inebriation state. It's a drinking. Be it little or much, Peter condemned it. The Holy Spirit condemned it. The smallest amount of alcoholic beverage for social consumption is wrong. Call it moderate drinking if you like. Whatever that modern word may mean, the Bible says it's not acceptable to God. It's wrong. And not only that, you may notice that any action that would endorse or encourage these things that we've studied would itself also be condemned. You and I as Christians, we stand for the truth. We may ourselves not be drinkers, but we never encourage it in the life of anybody else either. Because we know their eternal salvation is hinging upon that choice and that particular pursuit in life. Isn't it fair to say, as you come to the bottom of that slide, what Peter's writing here isn't anything new. It was condemned in the Old Testament as well in Proverbs 20, verse number 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Habakkuk 2.15, woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink. Perhaps in light of those things, the New Testament also, in addition to this verse, has more to say. Although time will fail us to look at all of them, maybe just Ephesians 5.18 will serve our purpose. As Paul wrote that inspired letter, it says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Many, I suppose, have looked upon that word excess and said, Well, all right, doesn't it say, then I can drink a little bit as long as I don't drink too much. They've misconstrued the word. Wherein is excess is the same excess that's used in 1 Peter 4. It's this living, the kind of lifestyle, the word excess has nothing to do with the amount. It's the character of what's being done. That's wherein the excess is. When Brother Glenn read that earlier, the word used in that translation was profligacy. That kind of lewdful, lustful activity in life, and any amount of alcohol, little or much, contributes to that. At the bottom of that slide then, as we make some final comments in our lesson today, the church of our day, just as it has been for the church throughout the centuries, has a strong and powerful fight on its hands. 
worldliness as it creeps into the church destroys the life of those precious individuals who once were faithful servants of the Lord. A man or a woman who once understood the nature of living clean, godly, pure kinds of lives and then worldliness works in and he or she starts to drink a little or to wear immodest clothing. And soon the world has to ask, well, he's no different than I am. She dresses no different than I do. If that's the way Christianity is, I guess I'm okay. May it never be so of us. May we understand God has called us to a rich and pure and godly kind of living in which we don't follow the lusts of men, but we follow the things of God. Maybe with those thoughts in mind, these last few thoughts will help us to appreciate the ways in which the devil will frequently at least cause things to be considered. Think about alcohol for just a moment. I realize there's those alcoholic beverages that are perhaps labeled as more uncouth or at least a little bit more abrasive. There's whiskey and various lagers and strong kinds of beer. And maybe the world would look upon them in perhaps a way that would see in them some danger. But there's also these other alcoholic beverages like champagne and wine coolers that appear more refined. And some, somehow they seem a little bit more appealing. But you and I as Christians know there's as much danger in a shot of champagne as there is in a full bottle of Jack Daniels whiskey. God condemns all of it. And you and I in our desire to be pure with God, we know the understanding and we know the appreciation of what God has to say about all of it. Maybe in light of that, you and I then as we close our lesson will then strive to remember verses 4 and 5. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them. Who do you run with? Do you run with people who do these kinds of things we've studied today? Those who dress immodestly? Those who drink on occasion? May I say, be careful that your influence doesn't carry the same weight as theirs does. As a member of the body of Christ, God holds you to a higher standard. Use your words carefully to help them see the error of their way and don't ever condone what they're doing. Don't ever give the implication of approving it because your eternal destiny hangs in the balance as well. Verse number 5 ends by saying, Even though they may think you strange, they may call you names, and they may in fact want nothing to do with you, but you realize... You have a mindset toward thinking about the day of judgment. For you know that the God of heaven respects the truth. And He respects what word He has revealed. Today, as we've studied this excess of right, let's close our lesson. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Are you sowing to the flesh or are you sowing to the Spirit? There's only one of the other. There's no middle fertile soil, if you please. If your life is not one where you're sowing to the Spirit, make it right today. It may be that you haven't been guilty of any of these sins we've discussed, but remember, any sin will suffice. If we could help you to be made right with God today. The Son of God gave His life on the cross. 
You need to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His sweet name as your Savior, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if we could help you in doing that, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have become a Christian at some former time and you understood the nature of what it was to never follow the lusts of men, but you have become weak, you have allowed your faith to struggle, you have come to a point in life you've begun to do these things, make a change today. Today's the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. If we need to pray to God on your behalf, would you invite us to do it please? Repent of those sins. Confess them before the God of heaven. And as we pray to God, He'll forgive them. If we could help anybody today in one of these ways or others, let us know if you would while together we stand and while we sing.